Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Amazing grace. Amazing, Amazing grace. I'll see the sun. I'll see the sun. I'll see the rain. This week, we talk about a young girl called Grace who contracted an extremely rare form of leukemia. Her mother, Melissa Bumstead, was put in a place many of us never even dare think about, putting everything on the line in the battle to save our loved ones. On that journey, Melissa began discovering that the potential causes of Grace's cancer may not be very far from home. So, Melissa, maybe start by telling us how you decided to move to this community and, and where we are. Um, well, right now we're just outside of Simi Valley. I grew up in Thousand Oaks, which is only about five more miles from where we are right now. I went to Los Angeles for college. And when my husband and I were ready to start a family, we were looking for a community that was close enough to Los Angeles for work, but it was safe. I checked out all the um, Megan laws to make sure that was safe. I checked out all the schools. I checked out all the crime. I mean, I really did quite a bit of research because, you know, we wanted to provide the, the best that we could for our children. So you're, you're looking around for homes. Where did you end up locating? Well, uh, it was a rather miraculous purchase, but our first home was on Fallbrook Avenue in West Hills, about 30 miles out from Hollywood. We're, we're very close, which is why West Hills was so ideal. It's, it's the community for people who can't commute too much, but also want to be close to work. It's a fairly affluent area. Calabasas is right down the hills where all the celebrities live, and it's a nice, well-to-do, comfortable city. Okay, so you're living this new life, and and what happens next? Well, when my daughter was four years old, um, she started bruising, and she is a very active kid. Um, She's always been an alpha female since day one. What's her name? Uh, Grace, Grace Ellen. And um, so when she started bruising and I took her to the doctor, they said she's just a really active little girl. There's no problem here. And I pointed out, like, she, well, she has little bruises on her forehead. And they said, well, I'm sure it's fine. And they sent us home. Oh, a couple weeks later, I called back and I said, it doesn't feel right. I got brushed off again. Finally, she had a giant purple scar down her whole side. And I called back the doctor and said, this, this can't be normal. Most doctors will never have a cancer patient. And so I like to think that's why he didn't move quickly. Three days later, we were finally informed that Grace had every symptom of leukemia. We ended up at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, where on January 20th, we learned that she had an exceptionally rare form, incredibly aggressive form of leukemia, called the pH positive, uh, the Philadelphia chromosome ALL. And just as a mom and a family, I mean, that's just got to be terrifying. I mean... I can't imagine getting that news. Your whole life stops and everything crashes. We were impatient immediately for a week, but when I got home, I would not mean to, but I would just stop in the middle of an intersection. I'd forget that I was driving. I would forget where I was going. It's, it's, it's more than life-changing. And really, it's, it's hard to describe because a lot of these feelings I've not allowed myself to process. A lot of these memories, I've really worked hard to keep them away. I'm only just now coming to a place where I'm starting to feel and and remember. And 
um, it's a hard place to go back to. To be honest, it wasn't the first time she was diagnosed that was the worst for me. The worst day of my life was when she relapsed a year and a half out of treatment. That, that to me was a thousand times worse than the first one because we immediately knew that her survival rate on a, on a clinical trial the first time was a 70% survival rate, which to everyone else sounds really great. And to all the cancer parents, that's one, three out of 10 children. And they don't tell you up front who those three are going to be. So it's not amazing, but you know, it, it's, there's hope. When she relapsed, they would not tell us her survival rate. And I think it's because they knew we would lose all hope. We knew immediately that she would need to have a bone marrow transplant. We knew what type of chemotherapy she would have. We knew she would have radiation. I mean, we knew, we knew what we, how bad it was going to be. And I think that's why the second time was so much worse than the first time. The first time we were pretty naive. And how did Grace, how did she react to, to all this? Like as a, as a kid, you're going through this really, you know, and especially adults, we know more, like how is she coping? Well, it's interesting because I think most people assume that childhood cancer is, you know, some throwing up, some discomfort, and the worst part's you lose your hair. It turns out losing your child, losing their hair is the easiest part of the entire journey. Everything else is a thousand times worse. And fortunately, when Grace was four years old, she still really looked to my husband and I for approval. And so she, and because she was at the children's hospital all the time and all the children in her ward are all bald, that was a comfortable place for her. By the time she was in um, second grade, she, she knew that other kids had hair. She, she knew that she was different. She knew right after, I mean, the minute after we told her that she had relapsed, she said, am I going to die? She knew everything too. And, um, and that's tough on a kid. And it was tough on my son, who was only two and a half when she was diagnosed. And if Grace had a fever in the middle of the night, uh, we had one hour to get her life-saving antibiotics. So it was an emergency situation to get straight down to the children's hospital. And I couldn't wake him up at three in the morning and say goodbye. But sometimes I'd be gone for three to four weeks inpatient. And so he, he developed a lot, of, um, a lot of his own issues and problems and, and heartache. Uh, I mean, our whole family was affected. My daughter had the worst of it, obviously. But I don't think people quite realize the trauma it brings to the entire family. So because Grace's cancer was so aggressive, did, did she need different or more kinds of treatment? She ended up having 10 times the regular dose of chemotherapy than a standard leukemia child would have. And um, so we, we spent long time impatient because it was so devastating on her body. She had um, all kinds of issues. She, she couldn't eat anymore. She had sores all throughout her mouth. In fact, they said it was one of the worst cases of mucositis they've ever seen. It was all the way, every part of her mucus lining in her body was covered in, in canker-like sores. Um, so she was addicted to morphine at that time. The chemotherapy gave her neuropathy, where if, she, if her feet touched the ground, she would be screaming in pain. Um, pancreatitis and a blood staph infection, all at the same time. When did you start noticing patterns that you saw at the, the children's cancer ward? We lived at the hospital more than a typical leukemia patient might. And so we met a lot of the, um, the other families staying there. And Grace and I were walking down the hall one day and a mom opens the door and says, I know you from the park. I recognize your daughter. And I said, 
you know, childhood cancer is really rare. That's impossible. I'm sorry, I don't believe you. And when I went home that weekend, I found out that she was right. She was in the background of the pictures from that day, and her daughter now had neuroblastoma, which is in cancer more rare than my daughter's. And 11 months after that day, she passed away at two years old. And then we met the Hammersleys, and again in treatment, and just you know, casual conversation. Oh, so where are you guys from? And she said, Simi Valley. And Simi Valley is not far from my home, so that was alarming to me, but I, I kind of wrote it off. You know, it's a fairly populated area. Uh, her daughter Hazel also had neuroblastoma, and excessively, I, I believe there's only 600 cases in America every year of neuroblastoma. And um, Hazel was in treatment. Hazel passed away uh, last March after a six or seven year battle. And so after I met Hazel's family, I was, I was a little bit more concerned. Well, then I met Tyler, who was literally two blocks down from us. And then we met Dylan, who was just down the street. And then we met the boy with, uh, with the AML, which is another rare form of cancer, just behind the high school. And I started to panic. We formed a Facebook group of all the local parents, and we started to plot ourselves out on Google Maps. There's a big hole in the middle of this circle around uh, the Santa Susana Mountains. That was the first time I'd really ever heard the words the Santa Susana Field Lab. For some more information on the history of the Santa Susana Field Lab, we turn to a 2006 documentary made by the History Channel. In 1959, just 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles, a little-known nuclear disaster began to unfold at an important Cold War facility. The Santa Susana Field Laboratory, created by the government's Atomic Energy Commission, was built in the hills above Simi Valley, on July 26, 1959, technicians barely managed to manually shut down the sodium reactor when temperature and radiation readings quickly jumped. Then they discovered that 13 of 43 radioactive fuel rods were damaged and partially melted. And because this was an experimental reactor, it was designed so that radioactive gases would be intentionally vented out into the environment. Exactly how much radiation went into the atmosphere is still a matter of debate, because the monitoring equipment at the facility could only measure very minor levels of radiation. The Atomic Energy Commission also managed to conceal accidents at two other reactors at the Santa Susana facility in the 1960s. And because certain types of radiation released in the accident can remain at dangerously high levels for centuries, the decisions made at Santa Susana in the 1950s and 60s will continue to affect residents for generations to come. More recently, the NBC4i team in Los Angeles did a year-long investigation into the Santa Susana Field Lab. If you live close to the hot zone, you could still be exposed or even get sick. We found this document, which confirms the 1959 meltdown led to a release of radioactive contaminants. More than half a million Southern Californians now live near one of the most contaminated sites in California. 60 years and they haven't started cleanup yet. It's a toxic mess in the hills between the San Fernando and Simi Valleys. One that may be putting the health of thousands at risk. This EPA study shows parts of the site are still contaminated with radiation. And thousands of rocket tests done at the lab left cancer-causing chemicals in the soil and water all over the site. Melissa, how did you start to plot childhood cancer patients around the 
Santa Susana site. How did that come to be? It was difficult to find children with cancer. One, they're always in the hospital. So we had to track them down. In the last six years, we found over 60 children. However, I, I can't count them anymore. Whenever, whenever I had to add a child to the map, it was an entire day of trauma. I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't handle it, so I had to stop. So our count was frozen as of two years ago. We know of over 54 children who had cancer within 15 miles of the field lab. And all of those cancers are the rare, of the rarest types of childhood cancer. They're not your standard leukemia, which makes up 80% of the, the n national average of cancer. When I first saw the graph, our, our map, and when I realized that this could be a real problem, I went into total isolation. I didn't want to think about it. I wanted to imagine it away. I couldn't deal with it. Um, and at the time, I was an incredibly passive, um, non-confrontational person who could not imagine me being the person I am today, ever. Never in my life. I've always been the wallflower. I've always been, you know, the girl reading in the corner kind of a person. So I couldn't handle it at first, but one of the moms encouraged me. She said, there's a, a public meeting over that's being held about the Santa Susana field lab. We should go and at least find out if it could be the cause. So seven moms and I came, three of them had already lost their children and they gave a three hour presentation about, you know, the volume of contamination and the risks and the statistics and all this. At the end of the meeting, they said, every number we've shown you today is hypothetical. And I may not be a scientist, but I know if you don't want to show people the real numbers and they had the real numbers, they're hiding something. I went to the parking lot and I almost threw up. So I went into hiding again. I couldn't handle it. It was, I mean, and my daughter was still in treatment. This wasn't years later. This was, she was in the, her second year of treatment and we were still at the hospital all the time. And my son was still recovering and you know, my husband and I were trying to keep our marriage together. And then I went to Target. And in Target, there was a baby, a blonde baby, whose hair hadn't come in yet. And I assumed that the baby had cancer. And I had a panic attack. I had a, a full panic attack in the middle of Target. And I realized I at least know what the risks are of living here. But no other parent here knows about it. No one in my community knew about it. And so they're not able to make a choice if they're willing to accept that risk. And I realized that if I didn't do something, I was as bad as the people who were covering it up. I was part of their team. And that's the day when I realized I'm gonna hurt either way. I'm either gonna be destroyed by trying to get involved and do something, or I'm gonna be destroyed in panic attacks and, and knowing that I'm not helping. And, and that was enough to finally push me to the side of, I, I, need, I had no idea what I could do but I knew I needed to do something. So that, that's a huge transformation in, in your life. So tell us about what's happened since that day. Well, thankfully, um, Denise Duffield from Physicians for Social Responsibility was at that first meeting. And um, it was a very contentious meeting. People were screaming. I thought they were going to throw chairs, everybody. And I didn't understand that that was a first meeting where it was being explained they were not going to do their cleanup promises. I didn't know that. So when everyone was screaming and yelling and the scientists are yelling and I just looked for the most sane person in the whole room. And thankfully that was Denise. And I went up to her and said, I, I need to know more. Um, she gave me her card. And when I was ready to start helping, 
she mentored me through that process and tried to make sure she sheltered me from a lot of the the fights and the contention and she would call me and say if you don't share your story they're not going to understand what's at risk and to be honest every time i have to remember what my daughter went through um it's ripping all the wounds open fresh every time and so that has been a very painful process but i i agreed with her you know people don't they don't understand how inhumane childhood cancer is and because my daughter is thankfully a survivor because she had full body radiation um so many times and she had such intense chemotherapy uh, statistically she is more likely to have a life threatening health illness by the age she is 40 most survivors do and it's often organ failure because children's bodies were not made to have that and most most prostate and, and breast cancers where that's the two most common cancers in America the onset age is 65 so if you make it for 20 years you're doing great if a child makes it for 20 years it's still a tragedy and and that's why i think and then all the stupid cancer commercials they do all this you know the color it's childhood cancer month right now in september and the color for childhood cancer is gold so we wear the gold ribbons and do that all up and now there's gold washing where car commercials are like we'll donate a penny for every car you buy to the but they'll show the commercial of crying moms and like you know the bald children and it's 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 horrible and but the kids are never that bad i mean you're not seeing them being pinned down by four nurses so they could get a blood draw and the child scream mom why are you letting them do this to me and having that happen twice a week for 2 years You know that's not that's not what they show so people assume oh it's not that bad they just feel a little nauseous they're they're sitting up in bed you know my daughter thank god slept off most of the worst parts i hope she'll never remember but i will never ever forget how horrible it was i just can't imagine what you've gone through melissa and and your whole family tell me about how you kind of started thinking about the relationship between santa susana this facility where they tested radiological material and and the cancer cluster. When I was looking around at the community, I realized the problem wasn't the science, it wasn't the facts. I realized that the problem was nobody was willing to stand up in the community and say this is wrong, these people are lying because none of us felt qualified to do that. And I just felt like every time I tried to run away, I felt God very strongly push me back. Very strong every time. and i figured if god felt this was worth fighting for he was probably right and so i i kind of made that statement before i was emotionally ready for it the more i learned the more it was backed up but um but it's so hard i mean i'm i'm a graphic designer by trade i didn't take a whole lot of science in college and yet having to stand up and tell these you know well regarded scientists through the department of energy and nasa and um boeing that that they're lying to the public. I mean, that was that was a terrifying thing to do. But um the connections and and all the reports and the da- it was all there. It was just more a problem of taking the perception that the public had that this is two groups of scientists fighting over scientists things that probably don't really matter in the end to sharing all the cancer stories of the children and saying no this is affecting us and we are not being protected. which is really emotionally traumatizing. I mean, we had not only the the trauma of people living here realizing that every day they live here their child could get cancer. 
you know, whether whatever statistic doesn't really matter to a parent. You know, we're the kind of community that we won't let our children drink out of BPA cups. So knowing that you live next to one of America's worst nightmare, I mean, it is a nightmare. It is America's worst nuclear meltdown. That is traumatizing. To find out that your government is not protecting you, that is as equally traumatizing. And so it has been very difficult to mobilize this community because it's so emotionally traumatic. And because in Simi Valley and West Hills, that's where the scientists lived who were doing all this at the field lab. This was their home. And so a lot of them, either they're still alive and saying that I'm a fear monger or their children are still alive and say, how dare you say this about my dad or my grandpa? And so, again, it's been it's been very difficult to help the community realize. But step by step by step over the last four years, everyone now knows about the Santa Susana Field Lab. And it pains me that that was at the cost of my daughter getting cancer. I mean, if we were to do all this just to save one child, it would be worth it. It would be so worth it. You went from graphic designer to a mom to a mom with a daughter with cancer to an advocate. Well, it's interesting. People didn't believe in God before. They probably will after this because it has been miracle after miracle. I mean, every time someone has said there's no chance we can get this cleanup, a door opens. And so I feel like similarly... Uh, that God has been training me that for this my whole life. All those weird jobs I had, all the the writing course I took to write fiction because I thought I was going to be a writer, all of it accumulated into something you couldn't learn in college. And I was able to share my daughter's story as we were going through it and really relay some deep emotions because of the writing class I took. And people really got involved, especially when my daughter relapsed, and they watched her journey through this, and they realized how bad it was and how how this has to be stopped and then and then I can make posters because I'm a graphic designer and without the right people having come in with the with the will to do the right thing to protect our community I mean I would just still be a cancer mom making a lot of noise but um but I, I'm just so thankful there's there's new people coming in willing to stand up willing to put their jobs and their lifestyles at risk to to protect our community I mean that's that's so valuable. And another thing that's really been helpful that I think has taken me much further than I deserve is the change.org petition we started. It has almost 700,000 signatures right now for the full cleanup of the field lab. And that has just really opened a lot of doors that I don't, when we were in Washington, DC, I was kind of, you know, I'm, I don't have a presence. I'm not one of those people. But when they heard that we had 700,000 signatures, people sat up and they said, wait, I'm sorry, did you say 700? No, 700,000. Um, that got us, and I think, well, that got us a lot of help. But I think a lot of the, the elected officials here have wanted to help, but they didn't have the public support. But now that we have the public support, they feel like they're empowered to do the right thing now. And when we learned that um, the way that our community has been treated by the Department of Energy, that that's happening across America, we actually have a kind of a coalition of moms really working hard with this. So in addition to many good men, but, but for my community right now, it's mostly moms, um, that we want to take this to the nation. And there's a lot of people who do not have the resources that we have. They do not have the Kardashians who want to get involved. They don't have good people in government offices. And so, so first we want this to succeed. And God willing, we're going to take this across America because no... Nobody deserves to live 
next to toxic waste. No, no family deserves to have to bury their children. It's got to stop. And I don't think most people in America know that this is happening. So when you're in the difficult position of, you know, there's all this complex science and history, and how do you deal with these people that constantly want to shut your story down? I actually have a baseline because on certain days I want to pretend it's not there. You know, it's just, sometimes it's just too much. And, but my baseline to be like, no, I'm not imagining this. I'm not, you know, on the days when the scientists say that I'm a tree hugger, which I am, but not in a nice way, they're saying it. My baseline is that I know plutonium is bad. That is, that is a very easy baseline for any kindergartner in America. Plutonium, bad. And there is plutonium on that site. And it is, has the potential to reach my community. So any days when I feel just really underwater with everything people are saying, that, that baseline brings me back again to say, no, this isn't right. Was there ever a time where you were like the emotional and, and financial and other stresses are just like, I, I can't do this anymore? Yeah. I mean, if it hadn't been for the right people getting involved and if it hadn't been for the generosity of everybody on that petition, they financed our trip to Washington. I couldn't have afforded that. They financed our trip to Sacramento. They, they did fundraising so we could, we were doing independent soil sampling after the Woolsey fire started on the site. So we actually were given a grant from Fairwinds Laboratory to do soil sampling, but we needed to hire collectors. And so that money came from the, the community again. So their generosity has, has just brought us so far. We would not be where we are, are again without so many committed, dedicated, generous people. How is Grace doing now? She's great. She is as alpha female as ever. Uh, she's in karate. She's going to test for her blue belt in a couple of weeks. She's uh, finally made friends at school because, I mean, she had very little school over the last five years, even though she had private tutors or she'd have to catch up. She didn't have that peer-to-peer relationship. She only knew how to talk to nurses who, you know, doted on her, which is great. But when you come into the real world and you're like, oh, hey, you're just another kid, that, that's hard on cancer kids. But she has. She's joined Girl Scouts. She's making friends. If you were to look at her today, you would never guess that she is a two-time cancer survivor. Well, that, that is the best part of this entire story. I'm so proud of my whole family. They say 50% of families fall apart with, I'm literally divorced through childhood cancer. 50% of families are uh, financially bankrupt. I'm so thankful that you, you can't stay the same, that's for sure. You have to either figure out a way to get stronger or you break. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that we were able to become stronger through, again, the support of so many people and I believe our faith. And, um, and obviously, we don't have any savings. I mean, we're, we're flat broke. And we, we put everything into paying for all the costs that insurance doesn't cover. But we're, we didn't lose our house and we didn't... You know, people helped us cover childhood care for my son because he had to start going to preschool. And we're incredibly grateful. I'm incredibly grateful. And I'm, I'm very proud of my family. And I'm, I'm very proud of my community and all those who've, who've made sure we didn't, we didn't sink. And what's the lesson for other communities around the country where moms are playing more and more of an active role? I think it's tricky, to be honest. Again the fact that I look like a fairly regular person and I can communicate fairly regularly, that has been a big asset instead of some communities are very angry 
and, and well-deserved, but sometimes that anger can really shut doors quickly. And I'm very thankful that I had really amazing scientists to pull from because if I tried to dig this up myself and present it to the public, one, I would have made a lot of mistakes, and two, they would have they would assume that I was making it up because who are you going to believe, the government scientist or me? So I would highly recommend trying to get a coalition of well-placed, well-experienced um, people who do have all that facts to work with the community because that's a big part of the problem here is the shutdown of communication between the government agencies in charge of it and the people who live there. It's almost non-existent for our community. And then I think most of all is that you know, cancer, there's mama bears and then there's cancer mama bears. And and for all the cancer mama bears out there, you you have to do what you have to do to protect your kid. And, and sometimes that puts us into very uncomfortable situations. But a lot of families, I mean, when they do this kind of activism, they're putting their entire mortgage at risk and they're putting their families meal for dinner on, you know, everything is a huge risk for them. So I just, I truly admire them. And um, especially for the, the communities that I've met several people from where, where it has been 15 years that they've been fighting for their cleanup. I mean, I've been fighting for four years. I'm exhausted. And so these people, even in, even in our own community, there have been Marie and Dawn and Holly, they started this 15 years ago. They're the ones who shut down the lab. That kind of, of endurance and perseverance to me is remarkable. Uh, those are people I admire and they're, they're my heroes. Grace, thank God, is doing well, but you meet people whose kids have passed away and you go to their funerals. I mean, what does that feel like? I sometimes wonder if I had to go to another child's funeral, if I would survive it. Um, and every time a child is diagnosed in our community and I find out about it, I'm right back to the feelings of when Grace was diagnosed. I mean, it's, it's so incredibly personal and the PTSD is more real than I would have imagined it to be. The bond between us mothers is unbreakable. Thank you to Melissa Bumstead for the courage and strength it took to share your story today. My heart cries for all those parents who have lost a child or who have had to deal with the terrifying threat posed by cancer. We're learning more about the environmental causes of cancer and other diseases each day. By preventing pollution in the first place, and by fully and quickly cleaning up the toxic legacies of the past, we have a prayer of stopping many forms of cancer before they start. We all know that there's no more powerful voice than that of our mothers, so isn't it time we gave them more heed? In the next episode of Podship Earth, I go beneath the sea to see how purple sea urchins are vacuuming up everything in their path, from kelp to abalone. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, let's never take the health of our children for granted. Have a great week. <laughs>